Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Buholtz, and this is episode 203, History and the Art of Storytelling, an interview with Jeremy Dronfield, coming to you on Thursday, July 2nd, 2020. So how is your writing going? Are you getting a lot done? Do you feel like the weird life schedule that we've been having has been giving you some opportunities to do a little bit more writing? I hope so. I've been getting a little bit more done on Love at the Clip and Curl, which is book two following Love at the Fluff and Fold, my last book that came out. And I have to say, it's going pretty well, um, except that (laughs) this book covers a much longer period of time. It's one year. And a lot of things happen in one year of a person's life and one year of a cute small town life. So uh, yeah, I need to spend a little bit more time and figure out what is actually going in the story and what is not going in the story. And then I'm sure I will get a lot more and faster and better writing done and words that are probably, you know, going to stay in the story as opposed to just writing for the fun of it. Writing for fun is good, but I would like to write words that are actually going to be in the book. So that's what I'm working on, Love at the Clip and Curl, and also still working on the edits for the uh, encouragement. I'm like, what should I call it? Encouraging words for writers, encouragement for writers. I obviously don't exactly know what the book title is yet, but I'm working on the edits for that book. And still working on the book title. (laughs) If you get to the end of the summer and you think back and go, wow, okay, I really thought I would get more writing done. I meant to get more writing done. Consider joining my coaching program, Finish Your Book. It just started with um, the group uh, actually this week, (laughs) Monday of this week. We started the first class of it. It's an eight-week intensive that's both group coaching and individual coaching. And it's all about figuring out what your goal is during this eight-week period and how we can get you to finish your book or to get closer to finish your book. Or if necessary, one of my students, he's starting his next book. So if you find that you get to the end of the summer and you didn't quite get done what you meant to get done, consider joining my next Finish Your Book program that will be in September. I am also co-hosting a webinar with my friend Jennifer Dornbush called Writing with Hollywood in Mind. It's a free webinar. We actually had one uh, last night. Last night, my time. Yesterday morning, your time probably, depending on where you live. It was on July 1st. But we're having another one on Saturday, July 18th. And so it's um, totally free. Me and Jennifer giving you information that could be helpful for you writing your next script or your next novel, um, how you can take things that are um, in current movies in the current system and make your stuff work even better so that it stands out more. So you can sign up for that free webinar at rightnowworkshop.com forward slash July 25. And if you're thinking, wait, I thought you said the webinar was on July 18th. It is. And the reason why the URL is July 25 is because the webinars are leading up to the one-day conference, Writing with Hollywood in Mind, that Jennifer and I will be hosting along with agent Julie Gwynn from the Seymour Agency. So lots more information on the website. And also just remember it's summer schedule. So two weeks in between episodes during the summer instead of having one every week, except for encouraging words episodes, which still happen the first Sunday of the month. So in a few days, you'll have your next encouraging words episode. And then a week and a half later, your next interview. I hope that you are getting lots of great stuff done this summer, regardless of how much you are or aren't having to stay in. I'm doing a lot of staying in, um, running out um, through a couple of fields for my uh, half marathon training. Just in case the half marathon happens, I'll be ready. If it doesn't happen, I'm running 13 miles that day anyway. (laughs) So I hope you're getting some exercise, getting some writing done, finding some ways to add more joy and peace into your life. Meanwhile, This episode is going to be very intriguing, I think, for you. Uh, Jeremy writes nonfiction. Uh, The book that we're talking about is The Boy Who Followed His Father Into Auschwitz. Sorry that I can't say that quite right. Um, And it is heartbreaking. Um, But I have to say that the entire time that I'm reading it, I'm like, holy cow, like the storytelling in this 
even when it's stark, I'm just, I can't stop reading it. So uh, I think that you're really going to enjoy this in interview. Um, regardless of whether you write fiction or nonfiction, there's a lot of things in here that are really useful for writers. So here we are with our interview with Jeremy. Today's guest is Jeremy Dronfield. Jeremy is a biographer, historian, novelist, and former archaeologist. His recent nonfiction titles include Dr. James Barry, A Woman Ahead of Her Time, a Sunday Times Book of the Year. He lives in England. Welcome, Jeremy. Good to be with you. Good to have you here. This is exciting for me because somebody who's like just a, a, a one-hour trip away <laughs> instead of on the other side of the world. Ah. Oh. So, so you have so many interesting um, job titles in your biography, but I was, I was reading it and I was thinking, you know, honestly, it seems like you've done multiple versions of the same thing, like biographer, historian, archaeologist. It's a lot of searching and digging and looking for something. Yeah, they're all kind of related. I've, I've had a kind of a pattern of turning hobbies into careers. That's really how it's progressed from one thing to another. I mean, nice. I, I, I started writing fiction when I was supposed to be writing archaeology. So that's how I progressed to that. Interesting. And then I graduated then to ghostwriting and nonfiction when I was supposed to be doing fiction. <laughs> and they, they, all, they all follow in quite a haphazard way. I mean, I suppose you get, well, you can, you, you're, you're finding some logic in there, but it, it never seems logical at the time. Right. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who are listening to us right now who are thinking, oh, so maybe my obsession with the bright, shiny other thing isn't always a bad thing. <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it didn't always come easy. I mean, I was, after I did my PhD in archaeology, I mean, my first ex experience of writing for publication was publishing my research as a series of academic papers. Then I spent three years struggling you know, to, be, to establish an academic career in archaeology, but it was so chronically underfunded. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, mean, I was supposed to be writing a book about art and religion in prehistoric Europe, but I ended up writing a novel instead. I mean, it, it took a, several go attempts. I mean, I wrote about, about a third of the novel that was set in the world of archaeology. Then I managed to finish a manuscript on a completely different subject, a completely different topic. And there was also a work of fiction, and I couldn't get anywhere with that. I, I, I couldn't, didn't manage to get an agent, but I got close enough for it to be encouraging. So I wrote another novel, and then that finally got me an agent and a publishing deal and got me on my way. Yeah. So was novel writing something that had been in the back of your head as a youth? Yeah. I mean, I, I was one of those kids that, you know, was, you know, quite advanced in writing when I was really little, but then didn't really do it. I didn't read a lot when I was a kid, really. Um, it wasn't until I was a teenager that I started really doing something with it and uh, first started making attempts to write little bits and pieces of fiction. It was really, it was doing kind of in an odd way, doing my PhD that enabled me to write novels because that, that was my first experience of writing something really book length. Oh, right. You know, which, I, which I had never really felt I could do before that. Yeah. Now, know, so put, putting together that impulse to write stories to write fiction together with you know the the experience of having written something at length and having had seen my work published yeah and also there was this kind of wonderful liberty with being writing fiction after being in the academic world that I could just make stuff up yeah. you know I didn't have to be meticulous about my sources and citations and getting everything absolutely tied up perfectly I could just make stuff up yeah but then I've kind of come full circle back now, now that I'm writing historical nonfiction, where I'm using my impulses as a narrative writer, a storyteller, with the, the, the rigor that I learned as, as an academic, the two have come together. Yeah. 
Well, I have to say, um, so the book that we're talking about is, um, it's your latest book, right? You don't have another book that's been out since? No, this is, this is my most recent, yeah. Okay. So, um, so it's what I've been reading, The Boy Who Followed His Father Into Auschwitz, which is heartbreaking. It's taking me so long to get through it just because there's a limit to how much time I can spend consuming this horrible... <laughs> I mean, it's, there's a lot of hope and, and interesting things where I'm just like, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil anything for readers. Let me just say it's incredibly interesting. And on the one hand, I can't stop reading. And there's been a couple of times when I've been like almost late to something because I was like, oh, crap, I just meant to read until I, you know, had this next appointment. Um, and there are times when I'm like, oh, I hope you know, this person or that person actually ends up with a happy ending because right this minute, like things aren't too bad for them. Uh, but also it's, um, I, I, so basically, let me just stop by saying, it kind of le leaves me speechless. I, I can't even imagine the amount of research that you had to read of all of these real life incidents in order to create this book. And it's not a short book. Um, do you want to kind of, take it from whichever direction is most interesting for you. You've probably done a lot of interviews already on it. Well, I mean, basically the stories of a father and son who were sent together to concentration camps in 1939, Gustav Kleinman and his teenage son Fritz. And in 1942, after surviving amazingly three years in Buchenwald concentration camp, they were, well, Gustav was transferred to Auschwitz, scheduled to be transferred to Auschwitz. And as soon as he found out about this, Fritz, his son, volunteered to go with him, even though they knew it would be a, it was a virtually certain death sentence. I and mean, that was the central moment that gives the book its title. And it was what really made me want to tell this story. This, it first came to me, it's an entirely true story. And the core of it was where I first heard of this story was in the, Gustav kept a diary throughout his time in the camps for over five years. And he wrote his first entry in it on October the 2nd, 1939, his first day in Buchenwald. And then his last entries were written in the summer of 1945, when he was on his way back across Europe, back to Vienna, his home. And I'm, as well as being a writer, I also do publishing consulting. I help other authors <clears throat> you know, prepare their books to, to attract publishers. And I was asked to help find a publisher for uh, just an English translation of basically Gustav's diary, plus oh. a commentary written by Fritz, which had been published before in German in Austria. And we couldn't get a publisher no matter what I did with it. <clears throat> because however fantastically important it is as a document, and what, however amazing the story it tells, Gustav's diary is incredibly difficult to read. It's, he never really read, wrote it in order to be read. He mainly read it to, to keep a grip on his own sanity. That seems to be the reason. So it's very difficult to follow. He wrote it very sketchily. It's full of very abstract references to people and places and events. So e even a Holocaust historian would have, wouldn't be able to follow it without constantly consulting their reference works and really that was the foundation of my research was pairing apart every sentence in that diary working out what he was referring to who he was referring to assigning dates to things he didn't always put dates on entries so that was the backbone of my research and piecing this all together working out what it all meant was really the core of the book. The rest of my research was, right, so Fritz, Fritz, who died in 2009, left behind a short memoir, about 20,000 words, which was meant to help illuminate his father's diary. He also gave quite a few interviews, Fritz, during his lifetime. I tracked those down. And there was a lot of archive research, book research, but the most important thing was I managed to track down the last surviving member of the Kleinman family. There were six of them all together, Gustav and his wife, Tini, back before the Nazis came to Vienna. 
it was Gustav and his wife Tinny, and they had four children, two sons and two daughters. And the youngest child, Kurt, who was eight when the Nazis came to Vienna, at 11 years old, his mother managed to get him sent to America to a family in uh, Massachusetts. And so he survived the Holocaust and is still alive and well in America. He just turned 90 this year. Wow. So I, I managed to trace him and it took a while to gain his trust. I mean, he didn't know who, who on earth I was. And, and I spent hours and hours talking to him, interviewing him about what he remembered of life, of the family's life in Vienna before, before Hitler came, as he puts it. Yeah. What kind of man his father was, what kind of person his brother Fritz was, you know, the things that held them together. And, and then I, and I discovered that Kurt's story itself was worth telling. And as I pieced it all together, I realized that this was as much as, as much a story about a family. Because at its heart, Fritz's decision to follow his father to Auschwitz came partly from a feeling of dread and despair of losing all that was left to him of his family at that point. And at its core, it's a story of Gustav's wife, Tini, Fritz's mother, trying desperately to save her children. And she only really managed to save two, her eldest daughter, who went to manage to get to England before the war started, and Kurt to America. And from being a story about a father and son in the camps, it became also a story about the whole family and what happened to them. Yeah. I mean, Kurt's story in itself was astonishing. He was there. I mean, he, one of the things that he remembers most vividly is the night the Nazis came for his father and brother mm. yeah, and his father being taken away. And he has curious gaps in his memory that trauma has taken away his memories. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that, that was the final piece that helped me put together this book and, and made me understand the family. Yeah. So it was it was a big research project. It was, I reckon, it was about about two years of preliminary research and preparation, and about a year of full time research and writing. Yeah, it was a big wow. project. And so you were talking about how um, somebody had been asking you to help. How can we get this diary translated into English? And that wasn't working. Did you? Did you pitch the project and get a go-ahead before you started? Or at what point yeah. did you get a publisher behind you? Well, oh, God, that, that, was, a, that was an ordeal in itself. Um, yeah. I, having, having failed to you know, get a publisher for the, the, the translated diary, you know, I decided that you know, because of the, the reason being it was so difficult to read, I decided the best way I could tell this story would be to bring my abilities as a writer and a researcher to it and tell it in a way that would be completely accessible to anyone. Right. So I, I put together a book proposal. Um, this was you know, during the preparation of this proposal when I tracked down Kurt and did a fair amount of the, the initial research. You know, so it was just standard proposal, you know, a pitch and a, a overall synopsis, chapter by chapter synopsis and a couple of sample chapters. Yeah. And we had no more luck getting that, getting a publisher for that than for the diary. The reaction from everyone in publishers in the UK and the US was fantastic story, but there's no market for this. There's no market for Holocaust. But well, this was before the Tattooist of Auschwitz became okay. successful. Ah. So it was believed that there was just simply no market for books about the Holocaust at that point. It only managed to get completed when a very small indie press in Chicago picked it up. And then I, th I believe it, the only reason they picked it up was because the commissioning editor there was the child of Holocaust survivors. And it had a kind of a personal, and they're, they're a, 
if I remember right, there were parallels between his parents, his family's story and the Kleinman's story. And I think it, it, had, a, it had a personal resonance for him. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, they were a tiny indie press and there wasn't a huge amount they could do in terms of making the book really reach a big audience. Yeah. But that, and I thought it was just going to sink into obscurity at that point. So they um, just bought North American rights then? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I, I mean, the, the, what they were able to offer for it at the beginning was, was so little. I mean, I'm a professional writer. This is how I make my living. This is how I pay my bills. I mean, I couldn't afford to do the book, really, yeah. at that point. They, they were offering so little. But by that point, I'd got to know Kurt so well. And I felt I think I had this moral obligation to him and to the, to the story to, to write it. So I just got on and did it. And wow. <laughs> it just took it on the chin. And, and then I think I, I felt it seemed like it was going to sink into, slide into obscurity. But then this really visionary commissioning editor at Penguin in, U, in the UK just decided of his own back to be he wanted to do a really good Holocaust book. And he knew my agent very well and looked at what was then, the title of the book then was The Stone Crusher. Okay. And he decided that was the book he wanted to do. And Peng he, he and Penguin managed to make it a, a number one bestseller here in the UK. Wow. And it has since been picked up by HarperCollins in the US and it's just been released in the US a couple of weeks ago and it was already reaching, reaching within the first couple of week, it reached a bigger audience than the original edition managed to do in a whole year. Right. So, yeah. it's, it's, so finally, for Kurt, because this has been enormously important for Kurt as the last member of the family that it reach you know, the biggest audience possible because he's, as far as he's been able to do, he's been you know, telling his story publicly for, for years and years. And this has enabled wow. it to reach a, the, the kind of audience he, he wanted to, you know, yeah. large scale. I don't know. I, I started on your website and then I went to another one and maybe another one. I think I might have accidentally clicked through to three websites and I noticed, um, you know, number number four on the bestseller list in Canada. And then I started noticing the dates. So the book has been just like this. I mean, it's it's been a bestseller and it's been doing amazing, but it's also, you know, taken months and I don't even know when the when the first date from the Chicago publisher was. But this has been I don't know, would you call it a slow growth? I, I, it seems like in traditional publishing, maybe they would consider this a slow term of, of growth, but um, it's been amazing. Yeah, well, in, in, in terms of getting it actually placed with the publisher, yeah, that was slow. But once it was out, I mean, when they published in the UK, Penguin, and Kurt came over and we did TV, radio, and, and it went into the Sunday Times bestseller list immediately. It was oh, an instant wow. success, yeah. The, the day that it was published, it went to number one on Amazon, Amazon's wow. bestsellers. And it went, it went into the bestseller chart on the strength, I think, I think it was like its two, first two days of sales. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, that was how good a job Penguin did with it. Yeah. And, it was kind of off the strength of off the back of that that HarperCollins took it for North America. Yeah, it, it was part that was partly a slow process because, of course, there was you know, the issue of the rights with the previous publisher. Right. You know, that that whole there was a lot of legal stuff that had to be sorted out. So that was really the reason for the slowness there. Yeah, yeah, but it's yeah where where it's been known about, it's been this enormous instant success because it is such you know the, the things that are, what appeals to people about it is exactly what appealed to me that made me want to write it this incredibly powerful moving story of this yeah. father and son and you know it's as you say it's a very harrowing story but ultimately I feel it, it's uplifting it's a story about you know, love and hope and courage yeah yeah, yeah I have to say um it's definitely um, I don't read a ton of 
of narrative nonfiction. I read a lot of nonfiction, um, not a lot of narrative nonfiction, but this is definitely like on the top of my list for narrative nonfiction that I've read in the last few years. You just, um, you're so consumed with what's happening to these individuals and the families, and you have the historical perspective and the personal, and um, there's something about your style that makes me sort of forget that I'm reading, and I feel like I'm, I'm watching this happen to them, and I'm so angry at what's happening to them, and I'm also just um, amazed and thinking, like, at least a couple times a chapter, I'm asking myself, could I have done this? Could I have you know, manage this and this and this and teeny just, wow. I mean, she's like, I don't, obviously this is one of those books that I do have a hard time, like thinking of like, what are the words that I'm trying to say? But like, as a mother, she just, she is that, that creature who is doing everything she can to protect and take care of her family in a way that most mothers will thankfully never have to even come yeah. close to it's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. And um, you say about you feel you're, you're watching it is ex exactly what I try to achieve when I write, write a story. I mean, I do think, I think and write visually. Yeah, I'm, I think in terms of the, the, the reason my, my books flow the way they do is that I think in terms of scenes more than chapters. And everything, I'm, I'm seeing everything in my head as I'm working and everything I write is a desperate attempt to actually present that visually. It's, it, I'm basically, really, I'm trying to make a film, I think, in my head when I'm writing. Yeah. And it seems to work. It, and is this something that um, you found is a normal part of your nonfiction and also is it a normal part of just all of your writing, fiction and nonfiction? It's all, everything narrative that I write, it's always, it's not a conscious decision. It's not a you know, conscious you know, attempt to, you know, let's try and do this with you know, what I'm writing. It's just, I gradually realized that that's what I was doing. Yeah, you know, I was seeing things and trying to make the reader see what I'm seeing, and it has this effect. It, it seems it seems to work, as I say. It's yeah, it, does, it does seem to have that effect. It's definitely but, working for me. I now I, I want to look into your other books. <laughs> I don't. I don't really know why it works. I, I absolutely couldn't tell you why it works. Just that's what I'm trying to do, and that's the outcome. Yeah. Well, you know that's funny because that was um, kind of a segue into the next thing I was going to ask you about. Um, in addition to writing, you are or have been a reader for a literary agency, a ghostwriter, and a book doctor. So you've seen stories that are having trouble, and you've seen stories that um, have overcome their troubles to be amazing, I'm sure. Um, how, what are some of the things that you suggest to authors when they're struggling? I mean, this is a big project, so on any of your books like what are some of the things that you learned that you can put into words as helpful tips for others i'm not sure because it always depends entirely on the exact book proposal it's it's more about seeing patterns of mistakes that authors make trying to overwrite things, underwrite things. Yeah. It, it, that, that's an important you know, pattern you see again, you keep recurring, is that you see authors that just don't give you enough, and then authors that give you far too much. A lot of the reading work I do is more around authors who are mostly already fairly experienced, often they're people who've already had books published. And often I'm advising them more about the way they present this stuff than about how they actually write them. And getting a balance of, in terms of how they write them, getting a balance of it with non-narrative non-fiction, getting the balance of historical background, context, narrative setting, setting the story in a scene. If people are able to do that, it helps get a reader, get a reader's attention. Setting a narrative within a scene, physicalizing things, visualizing it. Yeah. 
making like the portion the, that... making making the making the reader feel the place. Yeah. But then not overdoing that, knowing how you this is something that you can only really learn by experience by doing it over and over again, and by reading lots and lots and lots of manuscripts that aren't working. Right, other right. People's work, working out where that balance is between over to be getting the, the visual intensity, the immersive quality of the, of the narrative right and overdoing it. Yeah. Um, and just to give listeners an example, I, I just happened to be um, reading this section um, right before I, we, you and I got on this call to start talking. Um, and uh, you were describing spring coming to the camp. Um, and it probably was three, maybe four sentences, not long ones. Um, and I saw the greening of the trees, all the leaves coming out. And then you compared the um, the songs of two different birds, and then uh, the, uh, not uh, axes, saws uh, cutting through the trees and the trees falling. And I, that was all it took for me to know exactly when and where we were. I mean, of course, I know where we are, but at that moment, I hadn't been out in the woods with them yet. So I'm in my mind seeing these beautiful woods being, you know, struck down so that the wood can be used for terrible purposes. But anyway, I also like really saw that it was spring. I heard that it was spring. Um, maybe one of the only things that I didn't was smell, but like in my mind, I grew up in the woods and I could kind of smell that green, fresh wood smell. And it wasn't more than a couple of sentences. So I, I only bring this up because listeners might be wondering, well, how do I know if I'm over underwriting? Sometimes it's just enough, right? Yeah, I, that, that moment actually came from that. There's a, just a very brief glimpse in Gustav's diary that comes from, you know, that he mentions how, how nice it was to be out, you know, cutting, you know, cutting trees out in the forest. And, you know, it was, spring was coming. Yeah, uh, my, my natural inclination is to overwrite. I'm going back to my first attempts at full-length fiction. I overwrote really badly. I tried, it was getting, it was this visualization thing. And I was trying to get every last detail of a picture onto the page. So I really badly, really awfully overwrote scenes. And and I experienced that thing that we all have of being reluctant to cut stuff out yeah. and gradually learn. I mean, so many writers say this is a process of gradually learning to, to cut out things that you think are good. And for me, that's, that's I think it's, I've only really very recently, finally, I think, managed to perfect the ability to do that after a 20 year career. I wow. think it's only now that I'm really starting to get it properly right. Uh, you know, knowing, judging that, you know, how many, how many words to use and how many details, what, what are the most telling details yeah. you can use to convey that feeling of that scene and to learn. I've got to the point now where I can read through my own draft and just immediately strike things out that are too much. As I say, it's taken me 20 years of experience and not just, not just writing experience. I couldn't have got where I am as a writer without the literally thousands of manuscripts and book proposals that I've appraised over the past decade. Wow. I'd like with all of that, I, I'm including, even including the really, really terrible ones. I always learned something from looking at those and appraising them and seeing what people had got wrong because however bad those manuscripts were, there was usually something that author had done that I had a tendency to do as well. Right, and yeah. I learned to look out for it in myself. That, that sounds like um, a fabulous reason to, I, I suppose it's not an easy job to get, but it certainly seems like a great way to get um, 
need, I, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but I'm thinking in my head, a free education. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Quite a painful one as well, though. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. But then um, over time, you've found ways to be helpful to other writers. So um, if, I, if I'm reading your website right, some of the books that you've written were actually started by someone else, and then you came along to help co-write and make it into a publishable book? Yeah. Um, I, again, that, that was a bit of a, a sort of a strange start. I, I'd reached a bad place in my career, and my partner suggested, I, this was actually after watching the, the Roman Polanski film, The Ghost, about we've got Ewan McGregor as a ghostwriter, who's commissioned oh. to write a you know, ghost a memoir of a character who's transparently based on Tony Blair. Oh. My partner suggested to me, why don't you become a ghostwriter? So I found an agent who handles ghostwriters, and I, I just did that. And I mean, I have done some anonymous ghosting, but some of the books that now have my name on them started out as ghost projects. There would be, you know, somebody would have researched, people who were not, didn't have a, really have a background as, as writers, not even necessarily as amateur writers. Ah. but who had got, it, got involved in a subject because they were just fascinated by it and they couldn't make it work as a book. They'd done, they'd put the story together. So, I mean, the example is one you mentioned, Dr. James Barry, uh, A Woman Ahead of Her Time, which is the story of a 19th century woman who became a man in order to study medicine and ha ended up having a decades-long career as a surgeon in the British Army. Wow. 1865, lived as a man for over 40 years. And the secret was discovered after Dr. Barry died. Wow. But anyway, my co-author on that, Michael Dupre, who sadly is no longer with us, was himself, he was a retired surgeon himself and had become fascinated with the story of James Barry and had spent 12 years researching it. But he had, didn't have a background as a writer and he couldn't make it work as a book. So I was brought in as a ghostwriter to just, I was supposed to just take Michael's manuscript and rewrite it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I'd made another discovery while doing this and some of the other books that I worked on at the same time that I came to in a similar way was that with all respect to Michael, people who aren't able to write a book are also have shortcomings with researching them because mm -hmm. this was something I, that was new to me I learned doing these that these books that your ability your instincts as a storyteller shape how you do the research they right. they inform the areas what avenues are really worth pushing really burrowing into that somebody else might overlook and what areas are worth focusing on. And I mean, my background was academic, so I was a trained researcher as well. So I got so deeply involved in the research and the writing that it ended up as a co-authored book. And the same happened with several other books that I was working on at the same time that I was originally starting as a, intend, intended as a ghost, but became a full co-author. Yeah. It was a bit of a nightmare actually, because I took on four of these projects at the same time. Both, oh, wow. All, all, all four of them very you know, complex, very different periods, different personalities, all historical biographies, very quite, all quite complex. I took on four, did book proposals for four of them, all went out to publishers. Because of my experience in publishing, I figured well, if I do four, then there's a reasonable chance that maybe one will get picked up. Right, right, exactly. And within a year, all four of them got placed with publishers. So then I had to write and do partial research on all four of these books in the space of two years. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and I, I ended up making myself ill doing this. Yeah. Um, I was just doing them back to back. Each one get, got more and more past its deadline. The first one was delivered to deadline. Next one was a few months or till, till eventually the fourth one was a year late. Wow. 
so that that is something I would really not like to go through again. Yeah. And yet the reason why you did it is totally logical. So I don't know if you, um, if you feel like looking back, you have any advice on, uh, for people listening who might be, you know, d- struggling to decide, well, do I, do I send out more than one proposal for these nonfiction ideas that I have? Yeah. Um, the problem with people, I, I see submissions occasionally as a reader <clears throat> from people who are pitching several ideas and the problem with that tends to be that none of the ideas is ever really properly fully developed. Uh. I, when I did these four proposals, because another, another person had already done the bulk of the research and sort of pieced together the story, I was able to do full detailed proposals for all four of them reasonably quickly. It was only right. after I'd done those really that I started getting really deeply involved. So if you've got multiple stories or multiple subjects that you think you might like to write a nonfiction book about, I do, it's, if you have, if you have an, the ear of an agent, who, if you have someone you can bounce this stuff off, then, then it's definitely worth pitching a number of different ideas to see which the agent thinks they might be, they might be able to sell. But if you don't have that, then it is, I, I would really recommend focusing on the one that you really feel, you're the one that you really believe in the most. Yeah. And developing that fully. Unless you have the time and the inclination and the resources to develop them all as full right. book proposals. I'm yeah. Some people can do book proposals very quickly. Um, I don't know quite how they manage it. but uh, some of them some people do but most don't most take a very long time i've i've known as a reader i've known proposal projects take two maybe even three years to be developed to the point where they're actually ready for submission wow occasionally occasionally that happens and it's been nice here on occasion to see those actually find publishers yeah. So it, it's possible that while one's on submission, you can start preparing your next idea, but, um, but you yeah. may not even be able to get it fully prepared before you hear back on, on the first one. Even if oh, well, I'm well, used to, <clears throat> even if you're submitting through, even if you have an agent, and you're submitting proposals, you're, you could still have books can still be on submission for months and months before you really get anywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's a slow process, even if you've got an agent. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. I, it's, uh, I mean, if you had more than one idea anyway, it's a, a way that you can time things a little bit, gives you something to do (laughs) during the waiting period. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly what, yeah, you should definitely develop those ideas if you've got them. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. But I mean... I mean, it's getting harder now. I mean, when I wouldn't like to be at the beginning of my career again now. Um, when I first got up, my, I was submitting first as, as an amateur would-be novelist. I was submitting to agents in 1996 to 97. Okay. And at that point, you were still way ahead of pack if you were submitting to agents rather than to direct publishers most people were still going on to the publisher's slush pile at that point it was only the people who were forward thinking who, who went to agents and agents weren't getting that many submissions so i managed to get attention relatively a lot more easily than you would now i know that i know most publishers won't take submissions direct from authors and which with the result that agents are overrun with my own agent gets thousands of submissions every week yeah and i really wouldn't like to be doing that i mean my 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 heart goes out to people who are in that situation now but but agents have 
agents have this nose for something that's going to work and they can they don't you know even though they get thousands of submissions they go through them at lightning speed because they know instantly whether something's something that will work so it is worth persevering yeah yeah you still hear stories about people who were plucked off the slush pile so <laughs> yeah i mean when when i'm giving advice about book proposals i mean the way our agency formats them is to begin with a one-page opening pitch just a few paragraphs of prose and a few bullet points giving unique selling points and I know, usually know within the first few lines of somebody's opening pitch whether this is something exciting. And that's, that's where I always focus my advice is on getting that first page of the proposal exactly right because 99.9% .9 of proposals are probably set aside if that isn't any good. They're not going to carry on reading after right. that opening pitch if it doesn't grab them. So if a writer might be thinking, well, um, I'm maybe not so good at the, at the pitch, the proposal part, but when they read my chapters, then they'll mm. see the genius. So they might not ever get read. They're, they're, they're fairly, un unless it's a subject that the, that the publisher is looking for, but then there's likely to be another proposal from somebody else on a similar subject that may fill that gap. Yeah. But no, I mean, when, when you're absolutely deluged with submissions, then you do get into the habit of judging something on the basis of those, that opening, those opening paragraphs. And they, it is so important to get that right. And you have to get, and the mistakes that people make are, the ones I see most frequently are ex trying to explain the story in too much detail, starting from the wrong place, fail, failing to work out or failing to, have the experience, not having the experience to know what bit of the, what aspect of the story to lead with, putting, as they're putting in too much detail, not telling them, not, not being coherent, just giving points that the book includes. And yeah, there are so many ways to go wrong with that opening page and it is the most important to get right. After that, it's also extremely important to get the rest of the proposal right. But if you don't get, if you can't, that first page has to be spot on. Yeah. It seems to me that writing um, is a lot like a lot of other entrepreneurial businesses. You can have a great idea, but if you can't present the business plan to the person who can help you move forward, your idea, your great idea could die until you figure out how to make the business plan work. And in this case, the book proposal is our business plan to, to a degree. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, you need to be able to, well, I mean, it's standard for proposals to include a part marketing and publicity section, but when I'm appraising a proposal, I, I have a, most of the time I have a tendency, a bit of a tendency to skim over that. Mm -hmm. And unless someone's really got it really badly wrong, because that's really the publisher's job to know that more than anything else. And the problem, in a way, that's probably the, I'd say that's possibly the least important part of the proposal, unless the author has connections they can use. If you can put right. that in, then that will help get people in the media, people in the press that you can use. Um, mostly you're trying to sell yourself as a writer and your idea as a book and that's the most important thing that it's original that it's going to be good it's going to be readable and that it will be commercial that that it's that it will be commercial at whatever level is something the publisher will judge and they will judge tend to judge instantly and your best place you as a prospective author, you're relying to a great extent on publishers already wanting the subject before they've even seen your proposal. Commissioning editors have a, a set. Each year, you know, each part of the year, they will tend to have their list of things that they would like to see books on. Mm -hmm. 
what they're really hoping will come through. And if your book is one of those, that's how you stand, that's when you stand the best chance of being taken on. They're, they tend to be less likely to take books that they're not already looking for. Something has to be really special. It doesn't matter how well written you think your book is or how important you think it is, or you think that there will be people interested in reading it. A publisher has to be, has to be absolutely blown away by it. So they absolutely love and adore and they're incredibly excited by. Right. Which it's, is part of the reason why the boy who followed his father into Auschwitz found, um, found the right spot with the UK Penguin editor, right? Yeah. I mean, it, well, in both cases, really, because as, as I said, with the, with the original small, the indie oh, publisher right. in Chicago, because yeah. the, the commissioning editor had personal connection. And with Penguin in the UK, it was because Dan, Dan Bunyard, his name is the commission, the editor there. Um, is kind of a, a, a has is one of those editors who has a fairly free hand to decide what books they want to publish and really focus entirely on that not taking really random submissions yeah and um, he devoted uh, he devoted five years of his career at one point to persuading tom jones to write an autobiography and wow. eventually it was done <laughs> and there was a, a few years ago he decided he wanted to write, he wanted to publish a really good Holocaust book. He was convinced it could, you know, he could have, it was, the time was right to have a Holocaust bestseller. Yeah. And he went looking for subjects. He went around agents he knew. As I say, he, had, he has a particularly good relationship with my agent and my agent happened to have my book to hand. And that wow. was the one he picked. I had to make some changes. The, the original Chicago... I was going to ask you it that. Was, it, was, it was titled The Stone Crusher. It was Dan's idea to cha immediately change the title for the boy who followed his father into Auschwitz because he, he recognised immediately that that was the core, that that was the emotional core of the story. But he yeah, also... and the, it's the, also the, such a big conflict. I mean, like... Yeah. I immediately just the title you're like what why how <laughs> yeah and also the, the, the original version of the stone crusher was a little bit longer <clears throat> it was a bit it was a bit more detailed it was about 20,000 words longer if I remember rightly it needed to be pruned down there was a certain amount of repetition in it that I had to cut out I certainly was still that niggling overwriting there was a bit of that still after you know, 18, 19 years or whatever it was then, <laughs> I was still yeah. at a bit of a tendency to do that. And that was it really, just yes, improving it, which involved cutting it down, trimming it down to a, a really lean story. The, there was no surplus material in there, just completely pared down and yeah. simple and elegant. And that, that was all I had to do. And, and it took me what, a month to do that. Really? Because I, 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 by that point, I, I, I grasped exactly what he wanted from it, exactly what he thought was needed to be done to the stone crusher to turn it into the boy who followed. And right. we were so exactly on a wavelength, on the same wavelength, what needed to be done. I just got straight in there and just did it. Wow. You know, there was no, no trial and error. We both knew exactly what needed to be altered. That's amazing because most people that I talk to, when they find that they need to cut tens of thousands of words, and 20,000 is not a small amount of words, um, usually there's a, there's a certain amount of, um, I don't know how, where <laughs> to start. So that's awesome that you and the, and the editor are on the same yeah, page. Well, well he, was, he was amazed that, well, he and, the, and the, the editor he also brought in to help with it. Where they were both astonished that I did do it first go because I most authors, most authors, well, me included, you know, wouldn't necessarily get it right first time. Yeah, it was just with that particular story, that particular book, we just knew exactly what was needed. Yeah, and 
I mean, the end result is, you know, as I think so far as close as I've ever come to writing, you know, a perfect, a perfectly done book. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying it is perfect, I'm saying, but it's as close as I think I've ever come. Yeah. As you know, a writer, I'm so, I'm so pleased I, with it. Right. I, I totally get that feeling of, I, I still tell people that I, I hope that until I die and there are no more books that I know that every book can't be better than the last, but if every couple of books can be the best book of all of them so far, then it just makes me really happy. <laughs> and I haven't read your other books, but this one is just stunning. I, I, I am in love with it as much as I also just, I can't read it at night before I go to sleep because I'm afraid I'm going to have terrible <laughs> dreams. <laughs> but it's so well written that, like I said, I keep forgetting the time and realizing I'm late for something, <laughs> which is, I yeah, think, one just... of my best compliments to a book. Well, what I, what I tried to do when I was writing, so I, I thought a lot, of, a, a lot before I even began about how I would write it. At one point, I didn't think I was going to have enough source material, so I considered writing it as fiction. Yeah. Fiction based on a true story. But then as I did the research, you know, it all fell into place. And I had more than enough to make it completely factual. I didn't have to make anything up. Yeah. But I always had to make a decision about style. And, of course, I'd been reading things like Primo Levi and Elia Wiesel, those survivor narratives. Right. And... The thing that they had in common, like they do with, with war men, with war men, combat veterans, war memoirs, is a simplicity of style. They just let the material speak, for, the source material speak for itself in a way. They just tell you what happened. Yeah. And I tried to, to emulate that. I tried not to get... They, you know, that, that's what helped, that helped combat the overwriting. I didn't take things too far. I tried to keep things relative, relatively simple yeah. and tried to keep myself in the right frame of mind for it because it wasn't easy to write some of it. You know, it was, you know, emotionally, it was quite tough. Yeah. And I would, I would listen to certain like modernist music to get in the right frame of mind for describing Auschwitz, for example. There's, there's a piece called by uh, the Penderecki, Polish composer, called Th Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima, a modernist piece, wow. which is really difficult to listen to, sort of you know, crashing, dissonant orchestral music. And I, I listened to that as part of a way of getting into that emotional frame where wow. I could write about Auschwitz. Wow. It, was, uh, it was quite tough to do. Yeah. And that would affect the rest of your daily life, your nights, your weekends, and yeah, I'm, I'm the hardest part to write was was the, the fate of Tini and Herta. I, and then we're dealing with Kurt, uh, Kurt Kleinman, the last surviving member of the family. I eventually sent him the the finished manuscript to read, and it was that was hard because. I knew that I found out things that he hadn't known and that possibly even Fritz right. and Gustav themselves hadn't known, including the details of what happened to Tini and Herta. And Kurt obviously knew that his mother and his sister had been murdered by the Nazis in the East <clears throat> near Minsk. And he, had, he and his wife had even been there in the 1990s to where there's a monument at the site of that wow. camp. But he knew nothing about the detail, the horrible, horrible details of how they died. So reading yeah. my book was, would be, I knew, would be the first he would hear of that. And so sending him that manuscript, I felt almost as if I was sending him you know, a ticking bomb. And he yeah. later said that he found it devastating and he, he broke down. You know, when you read that, I'm, I'm, I find it quite difficult to talk about now. But yeah. It, at the same time, he was glad to know it. He had always wanted to know. You, you know, all his life had read everything he could get his hands on about the Holocaust, wanting to understand what happened to his family. And he was glad to know what, what had happened to, to them, with these things that he hadn't known about. Yeah. And, also, also, you know, Edith, Edith you know, the, the eldest daughter of the family, who was a refugee in England during the war, her, her son 
is still around and I interviewed him. He had no idea that his father had been interned in a British camp during the war before wow. he was, so they, they clearly, they didn't talk about it that much. Yeah. You know, so the younger generation of the family also were, were finding out a lot about this story for the first yeah. time reading this book. Because they, they have seemed apparently avoided talking about it that much. Yeah. And this, this is partly due to differences between Kurt and the Brits. After, after the war was over and Kurt, having grown up in America, ended up doing his military service in the US Army and ended up back eventually back in Vienna uh, visiting. And he visited his father and brother, Gustav and the Brits, for the first time since he had left. And he'd been in touch with them during that time, but had, they hadn't met. And he and Fritz had been, you know, as children in Vienna, they had been extremely close, best friends, but they had grown up. And Kurt, having grown up in America, had be, he'd become adopted American values. And his, but his brother in the camps had become a communist. You know, the communist and socialist political prisoners had helped the Jews to survive in the camps. Yeah. So they just did not see eye to eye politically. Uh, and so Gustav ruled no politics in the house. <laughs> yeah. And the result of that, to Kurt's lifelong regret, is that they didn't talk about what had happened in the camps. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, so I don't think Kurt ever really talked to his father about it, didn't talk to his brother all that much about it until many, many years later. Yeah. So it's partly... You know, I feel, you know, that apart from anything else, I've helped this family to, you know, uncover this incredible story. I don't think many of them knew just quite how how amazing their family was. Yeah. All many Jewish families have incredible Holocaust family stories, and they're all amazing in their own way. But this one, as far as I'm aware, is just unique. The story of Gustav and Fritz. There's nothing yeah. like it. You know, Jeremy, um, the tagline for um, all of my writing programs, classes, the, the podcast is write a book, change the world. And it's because I really, really, really believe it. Okay, now I can feel myself starting to cry. <laughs> I really, um, I try to help the, the writers that I talk to or students that I have to understand that if you positively impact one person's life, that is worth the time and energy you put into that book. If you positively impact more and more and more people, then it's even more. I, I think that the time and the toil and the tears and the heartbreak um, to write a book like this, or <laughs> you know, the joy and laughter and tears to write romantic comedies that I write, there's, there's a purpose and a reason for for books. And, and that's like a whole nother topic that I could go on and on about. But um, the ridiculousness of people <laughs> choosing to believe that most of this never happened and that it was all made up. And I wonder how much of it um, comes because uh, it's too painful for people who went through it to have wanted to talk about it afterwards. I don't know where the ridiculous ideas come from, but I I'm so, so happy that people like you and your publishers, you know, choose to continue to put work like this out and in a way that will affect the reader um, in their heart. It's not just reading. I mean, academic books are great for what they're for, but books like this affect people's hearts. And I think that it's important um, you know, who, who said the, the famous phrase, if we forget our history, we'll just repeat it. Um, and that's, uh, you know, not the exact wording, but, and I'm so pleased that you are able to bring like the, the family, the love, the heartbreak, the, the things that are so personal, the things that really affect us as human beings and that we can all relate to on some level in our own lives. I'm so glad <laughs> that you that you wrote the book, that they published the book, and I'm 
thrilled to pieces. I, I, I had no idea it had gone to number one right away in the UK. I just read the information about being on the bestseller list in Canada. I, I hope that it continues to do incredibly well. And for everybody who's listening going, my goodness, I really need to try this book. A, yeah, you do. And have some Kleenex nearby. Also, I really want to um, let people know this is, well, it's one of the uh, best slash most footnoted narrative nonfiction pieces that I've read. But this is the first time where I have clicked on every single footnote. Some of them are, you know, IBID kind of stuff, um, just uh, letting us know where you got the information. But you've got so many footnotes that have one or two extra sentences explaining what happened that I, I'm like, okay, I have to read every footnote just to get like yeah. even more of the information. Yeah, and that's, so that's kind of, a, that's one of the strategies I've used to cope with overwriting is that when I get those things, kind of the beauty of doing narrative nonfiction is that when I get those extra details that need to be cut out of the main narrative, often I can just shunt them off into a, into a note. So right. they're still there for somebody to read, but they're not clogging up the main narrative. Yeah. You take out a whole paragraph and just add the sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Jeremy, I would love to talk to you more about this, but we've already been talking for an hour and I fear that my listeners sometimes are like, oh man, this went so fast or, but I'm still on the treadmill. I really am tired and need to stop exercising. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Please tell us where can listeners find you and your books online or, or where else that we can't find books right now. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm at jeremydronfield.com, and you can always find my books on Amazon or wherever, wherever you get books from. They're, Excellent. They're, they're right there. <laughs> Great. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time and for sharing the, all your experiences with us and also for your book. It's beautiful. Well, thank you for having me.